Well, welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is episode 142 for the video cast, 132 for the podcast for the week ending July 7th, 2022. But this is going to be unlike anything we've ever done. We have a special guest, uh, and that's Philip Basilio from Legatum Group. And they're going to be explaining to us a little bit how over decades they've generated outsized returns, uh, so much so the brothers Christopher Chandler and Richard Chandler uh, in a period of 20 years turned $10 million of family money into $5 billion. And if you can't relate to that, let's just put it in simple terms. That would be like turning $100,000, which many people can relate to, into $50 million over 20 years. So it's the philosophy that's, that's key here. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I know we're going to have a lot of new viewers to this episode. I'm Tom Hayes. Uh, I'm the chairman and managing member of Great Hill Capital, which runs a long short equity strategy for accredited investors and qualified institutions. I also run the site hedgefundtips.com, where we publish our weekly research outlook on the stock market and the video cast and podcast. Uh, so without further ado, our special guest, uh, Philip, we'd, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background. I know that you started at Goldman Sachs, both in London and New York City. Uh, and then you went to the Dubai Development Investment Authority, quite an extensive background. And then you got hooked up with Christopher Chandler. So uh, without further ado, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Tom, I'm so grateful for the for the opportunity and uh, the generous introduction. That's really kind of you, and and uh, to be uh, to be on your show and share a little bit about our story is uh, is great. So yeah, uh, in terms of my background, uh, I'm half Greek, half Swiss, actually, and born and raised here in the UK, where I'm speaking to you from. Uh, ended up going to university in Boston, um, and then after Boston, uh, ended up going to New York and working for Goldman. Um, before going to London and working for Goldman there for another year. Um, and then kind of I had itchy feet, I would say, as a as a 25-year-old, as a naive 25, 26-year-old um, back then and just decided to move to Dubai. Just wanted to live in an wow. emerging market, wanted to, to be somewhere entrepreneurial, wanted to be somewhere where, um, yeah, just opportunities, I think, look different. Um, and so without a job, I left Goldman. And, you know, funny, funny little anecdote for you, but... You know, this was 2003, um, and when I went into my partner uh, at Goldman, who, who I, I will uh, not name, um, and I said I'm I'm leaving and going to Dubai, they they asked me what I was going to be doing in Saudi Arabia. So it was at that time it was kind of a contrarian contrarian thing to do. Um, but uh, yeah, moved to Dubai in 2003, uh, worked for the Dubai Development Investment Authority. Uh, helping them uh, attract foreign investors into Dubai to help finance some of the infrastructure that they were developing back in uh, 2003, as I said. And after about a year of working um, there, um, I got uh, a call from my boss at the time, and he said, we've got these two brothers coming in from um, New Zealand, and uh, we don't know what they're coming in to talk about, but we'd love um, you to take that meeting, because at the time, I was one of the only kind of non-local Emiratis working for the government at the time. So sure enough, I, I took the meeting, um, and it ended up being pretty much a day of um, a, just a wonderful conversation with Richard and Christopher in the back of my car um, in wow. Dubai, kind of driving around Dubai, talking about the different infrastructure projects that were being developed at the time. And through that conversation, um, I started to hear a little bit about what their 
you know, investment history was and got totally captivated um, and went back, did a bit of research. Um, and at that time, and this is pre the institutional investor article that was written in 2006, which I believe, you know, you've uh, you shared with some of your viewers, but very little was known about Rich and Christopher. So after digging a little bit, I kind of reached out and said, listen, if you're thinking about moving your business from Monaco to Dubai, um, I'd love to to work with you. Your investment philosophy sounds super interesting. And so um, the rest is history. It's uh, 2004, started working with both the brothers as they moved, you know, their, essentially their family office to, uh, to Dubai. Um, it was called Sovereign Asset Management um, and worked with both brothers until essentially starting Legatum um, with Christopher as, uh, as our founder, um, myself, Mark Stolson, and Alan McCormick um, today as, as partners. So yeah, sorry for the long introduction, but hopefully that provides a bit of context. Well, it, it certainly does. And, and what it really, what I, what I honed in on with what you said, Philip, is the fact that you are a contrarian by nature. You are willing to take risks. If you talk to someone who worked at Goldman Sachs in New York City and said, hey, uh, why don't you move to Dubai and just see what happens and go be entrepreneurial and, and take a swing? Very few people would make, make that bet. And what you saw was the contrarian opportunity that no one else was looking at. And through serendipity, you met the Chandler brothers and the rest is history. Just to put this whole conversation in context, I want to uh, read off some, some details here. The Chandler brothers, uh, they turned the, the 10 million into 5 billion over 20 years. That's a 36% compound annual growth rate. That compares to Warren Buffett, who did 19% compound annual growth rate over 50 years. Seth Klarman did 20% over 34 years. Peter Lynch did 29% over 13 years. George Soros and Stan Druckenmiller, about 30% for 30 years. So what would you attribute to the ability to outperform consistently over time? I know number one is that they had permanent capital. They didn't have to answer to outside investors, which enables them to, to bear a little bit more volatility. But uh, I'd rather hear from you versus uh, kind of filling in the gaps on my own. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've mentioned some incredible investors um, who I, I know, you know, they look up to and, and, and I indeed look up to and, and have learned from. So it's, it's quite humbling to be in that, in that company. But it's an amazing track record. It's an amazing story of, you know, two, um, two young guys um, from New Zealand and essentially kind of leaving New Zealand to start this incredible investment odyssey um, that started in Hong Kong and went all around the globe. And, and as you said, just investing their own capital. And as I think about some of the, the, the secrets to investing that capital and kind of what led to those types of returns, as you said, um, huge advantage, obviously, having proprietary capital. Um, as you as you probably know better than I do, you know, part of the challenge of, of this business is, is not just generating investment returns, but it's it's raising capital, it's managing a business, it's dealing with you know regulators, it's dealing with all the noise um, that comes um, you know over and above just the simple day job. Uh, and so I would say proprietary capital, as you said, huge advantage. Um, I would say second, just their belief in not taking leverage um, was massive yeah. and, and clearly, you know, making very, very concentrated bets, which was, you know, the third hallmark of their investment style. Um, you know, typically uh, throughout their investment history, they had as few as two positions in their portfolio was perhaps as many as 10. And obviously, when you're taking that level of, of content, concentration in your portfolio, no matter how, how good you are as an investor, sometimes things don't go your way, or, or at least um, not in the short term. And so just not taking leverage and the real benefit 
that uh, comes from simply just doing nothing and not having a margin call and not having to essentially be a force seller at precisely the worst time, you know, is massive. Um, you touched on the contrarian, um, you know, elements of, of their history. And that, that was a big part of it. It was just being willing to go places that other investors weren't. Um, and so that was a time, obviously, you had um, tremendous growth and development in emerging markets. And there were still many markets that essentially hadn't had any foreign investors. So, you know, amongst other markets, the brothers were the first foreign investors in Brazil. Um, and so showed up in Brazil and essentially, you know, had to had to learn how to even access the equity capital markets then. And so being willing to, to simply be contrarian and go where other where other, you know, investors uh, weren't was uh, was a huge competitive advantage. Um, and I would say yeah. the last two things is low turnover. Um, and so, again, just this focus on the long term, um, you know, Buffett obviously talks about you know, the 10 clips of the bus ticket and um, just mm -hmm. maintaining a concentrated position and allowing that investment thesis to to really play out over years, not as quarters. I think there's, you know, this this challenge of of remaining focused on the actual business that you're investing in, not the movements in the markets. Um, and, and I think that's a huge competitive advantage um, that probably stems from, um, you know, their own backgrounds just as business owners and entrepreneurs and instead of actually approaching investing as trading or as buying a stock, they were, you know, purists in terms of their belief in, in, in being, you know, fractional owners of a business and thinking like business owners and thinking like entrepreneurs. So I guess when you, when you take all of those things together, I think it's a pretty unique, um, you know, but very simple um, investment philosophy that, as you said, generated some, some pretty extraordinary returns. Yeah, so two takeaways from that. Number one was high concentration between two to 10 positions at any one time and avoiding the three killers that uh, Warren Buffett has outlined in one of his annual letter letters, which is leverage, liquor, and ladies. So uh, we certainly know they avoided leverage. Uh, the other, uh, other side, I'm, I'm sure they did a, a decent job as well. But uh, so, so keeping off of leverage, being able to deal with the short-term volatility uh, and concentration of bets. Those are three things that when you talk to the, you know, 25 year olds with the clipboards that uh, are running around for the institutions, they want to know your sharp ratio, they want to know all these things that go uh, contrary to actually generating outsized returns in the long term. And I think, you know, just to kind of take a pivot, um, you know, many people can, can reference the article that you uh, talked about, The Secrets of Sovereign, which is on the uh, institutionalinvestor.com website. It was written, I believe, in March of 2006. Uh, can you speak to a little bit about some investments uh, since 2006 that we haven't heard about, maybe a couple of, of the big successes? And, and the ones that I'm kind of most interested in, and I talk to my viewers a lot about, is the good news is... Um, when you buy a stock that's down 80 to 90% uh, and you know what you own and you know the quality of the business and you've determined that it's a temporary impairment versus a permanent imp impairment, uh, usually due to some, some type of exogenous event, um, the good news is you have a high chance of making a multi-bagger, 5X, 10X. The bad news is a stock that's down 80 or 90% can go down another 80 or 90% before you have your multi-bagger. So, uh, talk to us a little bit about your experience with short-term volatility and some of the recent investments you've been in in the last decade or so. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, uh, let me perhaps touch on the principle and how we deal with, 
you know, short-term volatility. Uh, and again, it's it's adopting many of the principles that came from, you know, Richard and Christopher's experience from the sovereign days. Um, but it was essentially kind of staying away from the noise, uh, thinking like business owners, you know, being away from the crowd um, and doing things differently. Um, and so, you know, a couple of things, and, and again, we haven't, we haven't got this all right. And we've had our own, you know, we'll probably touch on some mistakes a little later in the interview. Um, but uh, we've, we've obviously had our challenges and had to kind of learn um, the things that work for us. And so a couple of the things that we changed, you know, a number of years ago now, for example, is just getting rid of all the Bloomberg terminals. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, as, as you probably know, that's, that's our language to kind of communicate. That's our language of getting information. That's our language of, of you know, kind of staying on top of the, the market. Um, but I think what we realized is that creates so much noise that's totally, um, you know, the opposite of what we're trying to achieve in terms of how we're trying to think that it's just simply not helpful. Um, the other really helpful thing about Dubai for the first, you know, essentially kind of 15 years of our, of our, of our history there was the fact that Friday wasn't a working day. Um, and I think the temptation would have been to, well, we've, if, even though we're based in Dubai, we've got to work, you know, Western hours because that's when markets open. Uh, that's when markets are open. And we found just the mere discipline of having a day when the markets are open and not being in the office. So Friday, taking Friday where you're not in front of any news, you're not focused on any earnings announcement, you're not focused on economic releases. Um, and then conversely, having Sunday, which was a working day in the office, and Sunday being a day which is wonderful because no brokers call you. Um, there's no markets that are open. There's no news. There's no economic releases. Um, and so it's actually a day to read and it's a day to think and it's a day to reflect. Um, and so I think when we're thinking about how to deal with short-term volatility, it's trying to kind of preserve some of those things that actually keep us away from the noise um, and allow us just to control our emotions, which, you know, as you know, are just such a, such an important part of investing. You kind of, you learn, you learn how to do the science in uh, in business school, but nobody really teaches you how to how to you know do the art part of it um, and the psychology and being able to control emotions. Like you said, if you're invested in a in a business that's 50% down and it goes down 80% from there, you know what do you do um, and how do you control those emotions? And yeah, we've had we've had uh, a few of those. But before I touch on those, you asked about you know a couple of successes, and there really been probably. A few, a few that I'd probably highlight. Um, one is an investment we made back in 2016 in the National Stock Exchange of India. And so that's a little bit different because it's private, but it's the size of a public company. It's, it's relatively liquid, so it kind of, it can trade in the private markets, but it's based on the simple big idea of, you know, equity ownership in, in India, the growth of, you know, the middle-class uh, consumer and essentially an equity culture that, you know, is going to go from 5% of financial savings to, you know, whether that's 10 or 15, um, like you'd have in other developed markets, developing markets to, you know, 30% in developing markets, just a simple big idea, you know, exchanges are wonderful businesses, super high margins, um, virtual monopolies. Um, and so it's kind of one of those businesses that Buffett says best time to best time to sell is never. It's hopefully one of those you, you stick in the drawer and just let the investment work for you and, and compound over time. Um, and so that was, that's been a big part of the portfolio since 2016. And then maybe the other example I'd highlight, and maybe it's topical, topical for, you know, some of the, some of the things your viewers are, are dealing with is just, you know, opportunities 
to deploy significant capital in world-class businesses during times of extreme stress um, that are driven by you know, macro, macro, macro factors or uncertainties that are likely not going to have an impact on you know, the three to five year intrinsic value of, of those businesses. So you know, we were very, very fortunate to be sitting on you know, uh, quite a bit of cash at the end of 2019. And when COVID hit, um, this is part of the experience that we learned from 2008. So the good news is in this business, even when you make the mistakes, um, you hopefully get to, 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 to benefit from the learning lessons from those mistakes in future years. And so when COVID uh, came along, um, you know, March of 2020, we saw some businesses that we wouldn't have dreamed of owning from a value perspective um, that all of a sudden were kind of on sale. Um, and we didn't have to take a whole lot of risk. The risk was, was time um, and not price. And so again, coming back to some of those tenants we talked about at the beginning, if you don't have leverage, um, if you're blessed with proprietary capital, and if you're thinking about businesses not for where they're gonna go over the next six months, because that was a time of huge uncertainty in the world, um, but you could benefit from taking a longer term view, then obviously in hindsight, in the rear view mirror, that was a wonderful time to be deploying capital. Yeah, there's no question. So where, where were you focused during that period? Was it banks? Was it energy? Uh, some of the most out of favor or just basically anything that was on sale? What did you focus on any particular sectors? So we had, uh, I would say three businesses that, I mean, the benefit is of, of having had some experience and, and having a relatively concentrated portfolio with even, you know, uh, an equally concentrated, we call it a shopping list, um, is that these are businesses that we know well, that we've lightly either invested in before, we follow on a quarterly or a yearly basis. Um, and so at that time, it was, uh, it was investing in Amazon. Um, yeah. It was investing in HDFC Bank. Um, so, yeah. um, you know, kind of world-class bank, leading tollgate business in India, um, and SoftBank. Um, which yeah. was, was hated, was, was very contrarian. And we had been, um, you know, long-term shareholders in Alibaba for, uh, for a long time. And so kind of the, the, some of the parts, the discount, there was a whole bunch of things that, that made sense that allowed us to, you know, react and take advantage of, uh, of a compelling opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's phenomenal. You know, historically, when, when I read about uh, uh, Christopher and Richard, uh, they favored large cap stocks in big countries that had fallen on hard times. So uh, a quote in the article was, if you're invested in big companies in big countries, that means there's a ready audience of benchmark following investors who must buy the asset by buying big uh, and going narrow and deep as opposed to diversifying, you maximize your success, which you referenced. So our largest position at the moment is Alibaba, which is, is controversial, and it's, it's been through the mill in the last year with the Ch Chinese government. And I understand the runway thesis for India. It's kind of a no-brainer because their demography is much different than that of China. So you can't just say a billion four and a billion two, and it's going to be great for both because it's the age of the billion two and the billion four that matters. Uh, China's aging uh, more readily than in India. India has a much younger dynamic population. Um, but, but given kind of your past history, you know, uh, with Masi Sun, with SoftBank, uh, et cetera, looking at the environment now and, and uh, the exogenous event, the tech crackdown that seems to have pivoted in March, and some of these names are now up, you know, 40, 50, 60% off the lows, but still, when you look at long-term intrinsic value, uh, you're making a bet that this was a temporary impairment and actually the overreach of the government 
actually will knock out their competition and uh, create a greater moat over time and a larger share over time. Have you guys uh, started to, to take a look at some of the opportunities in China or uh, is, is, are there some things that con conflict with your overriding uh, philosophy, uh, which, which we're gonna touch on a little bit later about you know, uh, having a sense of responsibility and investing with governments that promote, common, you know, promote uh, prosperity on a, on a wide scale? Let, let me ask you a question back on, on, on Alibaba, because maybe, I think it might make a point that, that I think would be helpful to your, your, uh, your viewers. But why is Alibaba a controversial investment today? Well, it's uh, controversial. I, I think the climax was uh, the flush in March when JP Morgan put out the note that Chinese stocks are uninvestable, which yeah. gave us the opportunity of a lifetime to bring down our basis materially and increase the size because uh, we had started a little early, which every value investor knows well, uh, that you start early and then over time you, you build into it. And, and that was a, a tremendous opportunity. It's controversial because I think when, the, when people saw the, the Chinese government, uh, the Communist Party shut down the education stocks last summer, uh, there was no telling to what extent they would continue that philosophy of asserting the power on, on business, on people. But what we found out in our research is that this is a historic pattern uh, that often happens every five years, they have something called the China National Congress, which is coming up in November, which is the election, the transition of power. And two years before that, they tend to come down hard on business to assert their authority, to show that their, their strength of, of the government uh, and usually about 12 months before the uh, transition, they realize they've overshot. Uh, businesses start laying off people who are their constituents and they pivot. Uh, and in this case, they pivoted uh, aggressively in March, but they still had the COVID lockdown. So it got delayed. There's a mass amount of stimulus. And if you look around the world in the, in the large economies, while the rest of the world is aggressively tightening to destroy growth and consumption to, to slow down inflation, China is one of the few places, China and Japan, as a matter of fact, but uh, Japan has a different demography, much older population. China has been aggressively stimulating since November and has doubled down since March. And now with the country reopening and a focus on consumption, uh, we, we like the runway moving forward. And we think they can get back to uh, normalize 15, 20% return on invested capital over the next uh, 24 months or so. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would agree with you. And, and to maybe underscore the point, I, I think it might be controversial from a, a sentiment perspective. But when you lay out the investment case for it, and you know, you look at the valuation, and again, you look at things three to five years out, do you do you understand, you know, what the what the what that is going to look like over the next six months, you know, unlikely, but, uh, but on a three to five year view, you're getting a you know, incredibly profitable business, the toll gate tech, you know, business in China, um, the AWS of China, uh, yeah. you know, a, a portfolio of investments that um, has a, a long and exciting runway, you're getting a big buyback, you're getting a, I think, a, an aligned management team and culture, there's a lot to, there's a lot to like. Um, but yet it's the biggest underweight, I think I read it's, I think the, the, the underweight in Alibaba by, by institutional investors has never been this large. Um, and so there's got to be a real disconnect between kind of the fundamental story and, um, you know, what's happening on the ground and just sentiment. Um, and therein lies, I guess, the opportunity in the arbitrage is to, to, to try and kind of narrow the gap and take advantage of it. 
Yeah, no question about it. Well, so, you know, there have been few times in history where you see a full sector or index or country come down 80%. It's common to see stocks come down 80%, 90%, but to see a whole country or an index uh, is uncommon. You had the Great Depression when the Dow Jones Industrial Average dropped over 80%. You had the tech wreck of uh, 2000, where the NASDAQ dropped 80, 90% uh, over a couple of years. And more recently, you've had the KWEB index, which is the China Internet uh, Index, drop 80%. So uh, in my sense, it was a generational buy opportunity. And, uh, uh, and, and we were basically betting that if they destroyed Alibaba, they destroyed themselves, i.e. mutually assured destruction. So uh, to, to the Chandler Brothers point and, and how you invest, uh, we were buying large cap stocks and big, big, uh, big companies in big countries that people had to own once the tide starts to, starts to change. And we're now seeing that Invesco came out yesterday, a $1.6 trillion manager in the US saying, uh, China tech is now the best in the world, uh, the greatest value per dollar, et cetera, et cetera. What, what a difference a few months makes for sure from uninvestable to uh, best in the world. And, uh, and, and that opinion will follow trend. Um, you know, the other thing that they referenced, and, and I'm curious if it still applies, because obviously they did the Japanese banks uh, early, in the early 2000s at, at a huge discount to book. We did a trade like that during the, during the pandemic where Wells Fargo was trading at a 55% discount to book, and it had only done that two other times in history, great financial crisis and the SNL crisis. Now you look at businesses like Citibank down you know, at 50% of book even now. Uh, are, are those some of the businesses that you're looking at? I know that in the past, you've had to invent your own metrics to get a sense of what the future might look like. I also heard, uh, in, read in that article that you'd looked historically for businesses trading below three times earnings. Uh, you know, I, I, have you upgraded your, your quality uh, metrics since then, or are you still going for that deep, deep value? And when you're willing to do that deep value, uh, are, are you um, uh, focused on making sure there's a catalyst to accompany it so it's not dead money? How, how do you think about those concepts? Yeah, um, great question. I, I think maybe coming back to, uh, to, to an earlier point, um, I think one of the valuable lessons we've learned over the last you know, kind of 15 years at, at Legatum is I think if you're willing to take country risk and sector risk, don't take company risk. Um, mm -hmm. And so as you're thinking about, you know, th there's no need to be a hero, certainly in, in, in times of, of tremendous financial stress or whether, whether it's around the great financial crisis or whether it was around COVID or, or now um, it's tempting to like look at a screen, I think, and, you know, find what the, what the cheapest company is to buy that kind of represents good value. But, um, but I think one of our learning lessons like this is if you're actually going to take the step of, of deploying capital and, and, and being contrarian, and, and it sounds like you've done a great job of that with, with China and Alibaba, um, you know, I pat on the back to you because honestly, at a, at a time like this, I don't think you need to be a hero. I think, you know, simply, <laughs> simply taking that bet um, and being willing to deploy capital in, in, uh, in China at a time like this, um, again, don't take, don't take sector risk. Um, and tech is always going to be kind of a bellwether sector for, for China and don't take company risk. And, you know, when sentiment does turn and when opinion does turn, then the first thing people are going to buy is probably something like Alibaba. Um, and so uh, probably touch on, on that um, in terms of yeah, investing in things that have a P-E ratio of less than three. I guess the world was very different 
um, you know, during the sovereign days and uh, during during the days that Richard and Christopher were investing in emerging markets, you could find great businesses that were trading at less than less than a PE of three. Um, today, more difficult, obviously. Um, and so, I think the investment style has also shifted over that time to focus on real quality toll gate businesses and, frankly, being able to buy a great business at a fair price rather than a kind of a, a, a mediocre business at a at a distressed price. Um, and there's probably less appetite these days uh, of you know finding a business that has a real structural uh, issue or impairment to it that then needs to be fixed and kind of rolling up your sleeves and, and be the willing to do that. We've we definitely had some experience doing that. Um, and sometimes that's been profitable and successful. Uh, many times it hasn't. And so I think these days the, the investment style really is focused more on, frankly, just buying you know, great businesses at fair prices. Yeah, you know, I, that, was, that leads me to another. Speaking of rolling up your sleeves, I noticed there was a theme historically where the brothers had gotten involved in, in investments and businesses where they did have to be hands-on. I mean, you know, one, for instance, with Gazprom and taking on the oligarchs, I mean, you know, taking on your physical health to, you know, change the board, change governments. Uh, same thing in Hong Kong, in, uh, in South Korea uh, with, with some of their investments. Uh, how has that shifted? You know, what percentage? So uh, buying the Indian exchange, that's not something that's probably available to most of the investors listening to the call, you know, to do some of those privates. Uh, how has that changed in terms of, and, and how do you define quality? I.e., you said toll-taking businesses. We spend an inordinate amount of time on uh, long-term return on invested capital, defining the, 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 the quality of a business. Um, have you, in, in that context of buying higher quality, which probably need less hands-on, have you become more passive investors? Or are you still looking to shake things up where it needs it and, and, and create the value for yourself? I think I'll come back to one of the earlier points, you know, a big, a big part of the investment philosophy is, is really understanding what it means to be an investor. An investor, you know, in a, in a business means you're a fractional owner. Um, and so if you're blessed with, you know, the, the proprietary capital that we have and you have a concentrated portfolio and you're, you're able to have a, you know, significant position in a company, um, that gives you a seat at the table. Um, and that gives you an opportunity to engage with management and have a conversation. And so that's, that's, I think, a privilege and a responsibility that we take seriously. And so pretty much with all of our companies today, you know, we will have a dialogue with management. Sometimes in the larger companies, that'll just be with IR. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, I think because of our history um, and because of the nature of our capital and I guess our posture in trying to make things better, we will often have a, a, an opportunity to meet with management um, and be able to put forward our suggestions of, of what we think that it can do better. And oftentimes that, that is around, you know, the way that they communicate to the market. Um, sometimes that's around, um, you know, the way they tell a particular story around an M&A transaction. And so, so it really is working together collaboratively with management to try and be a helpful co-owner of a business um, rather than, you know, I, I think some of the situations that made up the, uh, the sovereign story where, you know, um, you know, the sovereign uh, shareholder rights were infringed upon or they found themselves in situations where, you know, they were in real danger of essentially, you know, being part of, of something that, um, you know, was not in accordance with their principles and ethics, um, where they felt like, you know, there was an opportunity to make a difference and make a contribution. 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that that's very helpful, by the way, um, one of the what what um, what metrics stand out for you guys in terms of when you're initially looking at businesses? What what's your composition of public versus private investments? Number one, and and you know we we've gone through a period. You've seen all the headlines uh, in the last week. Worst start since 1970, et cetera, et cetera. So there has been a lot of opportunity. There are a lot of companies that are down. Uh, 80, 90%. Most of them, many of them deserve to be down 80, 90%. Uh, some of them are losing money, but at the same time, growing revenues, 20, 30, 40%. Uh, and how do you distinguish? It's very hard to discern return on invested capital or return on capital employed when they're not getting a return yet, but they're, they're growing. Uh, how do you kind of think about opportunities that the market has served up today and how would you analyze businesses like that? Or do you just stay away from businesses that aren't generating cash? No, I mean, I, I think today the, the portfolio is much uh, more balanced between privates and publics than it has in the past. And, and part of that has to do with continuing to take advantage of the long tenure of our capital. Um, and so, you know, the NSE opportunity, the National Stock Exchange of India opportunity came about because there were a bunch of private equity funds who had held it for 10 years, whose fund life was was ending and there was an opportunity to, to buy a great asset at a good at a fair price um, and so some of those opportunities came organically some of those opportunities were I think you know more attractive clearly when public market valuations were um, you know where they were a year or 18 months ago um, and so some of that was driven by just a, a, a view over where value was um, but I think you know today I think probably one of our regrets is that we don't have more cash to deploy um, because it yeah. kind of feels like it feels like a great opportunity again if you have a long-term perspective, a three to five year perspective where you can find you know great businesses trading at a fair price. I think you know I was looking at some statistics the other day on Amazon and you know Amazon I think has been down I want I think it's down 40 percent um, from its high now, 35 percent year to date. Um, but I think looking back at its history since IPO, it's been down 40 percent seven times. Um, and so incredible volatility, right? But when you, again, when you zoom out um, over a 10 year, I think over the last 10 years, uh, Amazon has, has delivered a 25% IRR. Uh, I think over a 20 year period, it's, it's something like 28%. And so again, in the rear view mirror, um, you know, some of that stuff looks, looks much easier, but you know, Amazon 12, 10 years ago, 2000, 2012, um, clearly is not the Amazon it is today and the world has changed, but you wouldn't have to. You wouldn't have had to be a, a hero. Now there are not many people who did it, but um, you wouldn't have to be a hero to to realize that was going to be, be a business that over the next three to five or ten years um, there were going to be more people who were going to simply shop online. Now you didn't know. You didn't know about AWS. You didn't know about a a, 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 a number of other things that have happened to the business since. Um, but it just goes to show that these periods of of, of volatility offer tremendous opportunities to buy, you know, world-class businesses at what I would say are fair prices. Yeah. And how do you deal with when you go into an investment that looks cheap? So for instance, I was talking with a friend who wore, who's pretty high up at Microsoft. And I said, you know, it's interesting. Satya gets a lot of credit for what's happened with Microsoft and he deserves it. But if you look at the revenues per share, earnings per share, cash flow per share under the period of Steve Ballmer from call it 2006 to 2013, uh, the stock basically did nothing, but the growth in the fundamentals was substantial, similar to Amazon in the early 2000s. Uh, and yet, if you look at the percentage growth of revenue per share, cash flow per share, earnings per share on the Satya, 
uh, it's actually a much lower growth rate and uh, uh, much worse performance. The difference is the multiple got re-rated from eight to 38 times. Uh, and how do you think about going into new businesses? Do you look for some type of catalyst that will cause the business to be re-rated? Because more likely than not, you're buying it when it's on the low end of its historic range of, of multiples, I would assume. Uh, how do you think about that so you don't get caught in a five-year period where the business is doing great, but the stock is not reflecting it? Yeah, and, and, and there, have been, there have been those investments. Um, but again, I think if you're really focused on long-term intrinsic value, then if, if, a business, if a business is performing well and creating intrinsic value over the next five years, but the stock hasn't reacted, you know, to us, you know, we talk about that being a rubber band. It can only stretch, it can only stretch so far until it needs to you know, stretch back. Um, and so, you know, the challenge is how do you, how do you not take your eye off the ball in terms of what the business is, is, is delivering? Um, you know, we talk about the weighing machine and we talk about the voting machine and ultimately, you know, if the business is creating intrinsic value, then, you know, at one stage, the weighing machine, um, and the voting machine are going to reconcile and, and people, people are going to start rewarding that company for, you know, the growth and the profits that it's going to deliver. So I, I think, again, it's, it's really focused on what's happening with the business rather than what's the market telling us is happening with the business. So, so for you guys with permanent capital, you go in and you say, okay, this is a high or, or above average quality business. It has a reasonable moat. It's got good growing fundamentals. Uh, and it's trading at a discount to, uh, to that you're not so concerned with what's the catalyst that's going to get it to move in the next couple of years. It's more like, Hey, we've got an opportunity served up. We're happy to own this a piece of this business. And that's that. Yeah. I think we're much more focused on long-term structural growth stories these days yeah. that are less dependent on a, on a catalyst. Um, I yeah. think we've just, uh, I think, you know, had the experience over time, um, that those types of stories and allowing our compounding, uh, the, 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 our capital to, to compound over time um, is just simply you know, a more peaceful way of investing rather than trying to believe that we see a catalyst and, and waiting for that catalyst. And then if that catalyst doesn't, um, you know, doesn't develop, then you know, the investment is impaired. And so we talk about you know, the difference in risk and volatility. And for me, you know, volatility is palatable and certainly palatable when you're blessed with proprietary capital because you're able to, you know, especially if you don't have leverage, you're able to just be patient. You know, risk for me is defined as, you know, the potential for permanent, you know, impairment of capital and having to crystallize a loss um, and, you know, money going to money heaven. And that's a lot, yeah. that's a lot more difficult to recover from and a lot more painful than, you know, periods like today where there's just volatility. Um, you know, it's, 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 to me, it's simply a case of, you know, another moment in history where the market is simply breathing in and breathing out, as we say. How much of your portfolio is focused on, quote, seeing what's next versus uh, buying what has a demonstrable historic moat that happened to be trading at a discount due to exogenous events? In other words, you know, we can look at some of these tech stocks that are down 90% and, and make a bet like, well, they're still growing revenue. This kind of has a brand moat. This has this Y and Z. Let's take a bet that three to five years from now, their cash flows are going to come in in line with the growth of their revenue, et cetera, kind of brand equity or concept equity, et cetera, versus, okay, this business has had 
a 15% return on invested capital for the last uh, you know, decade. It has a high gross margin that's been unimpaired. And all of a sudden, it's trading below the lowest end range of its multiple because of XYZ happened. So how do you kind of break down? How much is what's next, which is slightly uncommon for value investors uh, versus uh, proven track record trading at a discount kind of, you know, fat pitch down the middle? I think it's probably a bit uh, split uh, nowadays. Uh, again, it's it's more focused around. Um, so we start with this with this idea of having these these what we call SBIs or simple big ideas. And so these are four or five simple big ideas or or themes that we have about what we believe. Um, you know what we believe will help to shape the next five or ten years. And again, these are not. I, I don't think these are necessarily heroic or differentiated themes, um, but essentially we start with a theme and then drill down from that theme and, and figure out a way of expressing it. So I would say part of it is um, you know, thinking about the direction the world is going in um, and how to express that view in the markets. And then the other, the other half is you know, taking advantage of being able to buy world-class businesses that have a demonstrated track record of delivering you know, 20% return on equity, 25% return on equity for shareholders that you know are trading at a, a, a what we believe a fair price where we're not taking multiple risk and then you know I think we're happy to take the earnings risk and then the upside is is on the multiple really you know as a bonus if you get the the investment case right. Terrific. Well, la last tough question. I know you uh, Dan was saying you you have to run it in a little bit, uh, but my viewers are going to like this one. So let's say you're traveling in South Korea and Kim Jong Un comes over the border and kidnaps you and he says, listen. Philip, here's $100 million. I'll let you free uh, when you turn this into a billion. What would be the three themes that you would be focused on to compound that capital as quickly as possible based on what you know today? Great question. I'm hoping I never find myself in that scenario, <laughs> yeah. having had Me some too. experience in South Korea as well. Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I, I think it's, you know, for us, we've, we've been long-term bulls on China and India, um, you know, I think you start with a you start with a big population, big markets, big companies, big needs to serve. Um, I, I would say world class talent. Um, uh, I think that offers a, a a backbone to you know a tremendous amount of opportunities created. So whether that's at an early stage, um, you know, a venture stage of being able to to support entrepreneurs um, that are going back to those countries that have. Um, the resources and the know-how to be able to create kind of the next Alibaba's, um, or simply investing in those toll-gate businesses. It's amazing. You 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 know you look at businesses like HDFC Bank and the returns that HDFC has generated over the last 20 years. Um, you know these are banks that are tremendously, or these are businesses that are tremendously well-run that have huge moats that serve massive markets where there's massive secular growth. Um, and I think those that type of runway, I think oftentimes we underestimate how long that runway is. And again, the market is is so focused on what the next year looks like or what the next two quarters look like that sometimes you lose the forest through the trees. Um, and so starting with big markets uh, and big needs that requires uh, being served, I think you, 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 uh, you, you can put yourself in a place where good things can happen. Yeah, well, th well, thank you for that. And, you know, I know not only have you guys done exceptional things on the investing front, but you, you're doing exceptional things on the philanthropic front. Could you speak to a little bit about what you're doing in the developing world uh, on the health front and some of the other projects that Legatum is involved in? Thanks for raising that, Tom. I'm delighted to just share a minute or two on it because it's actually integral in, um, 
in what we do. In fact, it's the reason why we do what we do um, and gives meaning and purpose to, you know, our uh, investing, uh, our investing business. And, and, and the team is deeply driven by the mission of the organization. Um, and indeed, we've taken many of the, the principles from our investment uh, from our investment history and applied those to the philanthropic world. So we're looking for, you know, we're making concentrated investments. We're looking for outsized returns. We're, we're, we're making long-term commitments. We're going narrow and deep. Um, we're, we're working collaboratively with partners to try and kind of create value. So again, we've taken a lot of our investing principles um, and uh, adopted those in the philanthropic um, world to right, primarily to three causes, um, to tackling neglected tropical diseases, to getting kids back into school in the developing world, uh, and to tackle human trafficking. And so those are three issues that we're really um, passionate about that we believe we'll see an outsized return from, and we're happy to make a long-term commitment to those things. And, and indeed, it's, as I said, integral to, to, to our firm, and it's not a separate team that actually does that. So um, coming back to maybe where we started the conversation, Part of the reason, or part of the part of the the way that I get peace, or the team gets peace in moments like this, is frankly, once we've checked that our investment thesis is still intact, um, there's an opportunity to serve and do other things that actually contribute to our mission. And there's there's nothing more fulfilling than doing that, uh, and being in a position where you're able to actually use the capital um, and actually deliver real meaning as a result of the capital that you generate. I think makes you a better investor. Um, I think it makes you a happier human being uh, and allows you to make a contribution to uh, to the world we live in. So um, that's that's yeah, that's a, the nutshell of our uh, philanthropic work. Thank you for sharing that. Two final quick questions. One, what's your favorite part of working with the legendary Christopher Chandler and the team? Wow, there's so many. Um, you know, it is the friendship and the relationship. We've worked together for almost 20 years. Um, and Christopher obviously has a tremendous legacy with his brother, uh, at Sovereign. This is kind of chapter two, I think, for, for his life. Um, and it's been a wonderful journey where I've learned um, as much about life as I have about investing. Um, and, you know, Christopher, regardless of how talented he is as an investor, I think he's an even better leader. Um, and he's a wonderful chairman and he's a great cheerleader. And, and I think probably one of the things that's not known outside of the firm is how little he gets involved in the day-to-day -day investment activities of, of, the, of the business. That's really left to me and the other two operating partners in the team. Um, and that's remarkable. And that's a, there's, a, there's a reason for that, which is, um, you know, a long time ago, he, he decided that the, the center of Legatum um, was around a mission. And it wasn't going to be around him and his personality and what he wanted to do in life. It was going to be to serve a mission. Um, and that single decision and his leadership around that has permeated the culture of the organization, has permeated all the activities that we've done over the last 15 years, and I think has been a wonderful legacy. Terrific, Philip. And, and finally, what else would you like our viewers to know either about Legatum's uh, philanthropic contributions and or their investment philosophy, something they can take away that will be very helpful in addition to all the gems you've shared over the last hour? I think it's it's really to find meaning and purpose. Uh, if you look at a lot of the, uh, the 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 great investment professionals, you know um, some of some of which you've mentioned on this call, but um, usually there's a deep meaning and purpose of of why they do what they do. Some some are philanthropically inclined, others are just madly passionate about the business. Um, but it's finding real meaning and purpose in life and using investing 
um, and potentially it's this approach, but using investing as a way of expressing their identity um, and using hopefully the capital they generate to, uh, to make the world a better place. So that's, that's how we built our organization um, and how we've crafted our mission, but uh, everybody's on their own journey. And uh, I wish all your viewers well and have just really enjoyed this opportunity. I hope some of this has been helpful and just have a huge amount of respect because uh, I, I gather you have a very similar investment philosophy, but you have the much harder task of um, doing that with third-party capital. Um, and anybody who, who employs an investment philosophy, anything similar to what we've talked about today and does that with other people's capital uh, and does it successfully, have a huge amount of respect for. So thank you for the opportunity. Thanks so much. That's Philip Vassiliou, CIO of Legatum. We're very grateful for your time, for sharing your wisdom. And I think this is going to help a lot of people. Thanks very much, Tom.